everybody, and welcome to That Life, the show where we are proudly wearing our rainbow loom bracelets that our kids made for us, but we left our own looms at home. Good morning, folks. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, and general manager here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Thank you to Charlie Harari. That was a great show. I hope you guys were all listening. You know how hard it is to follow Charlie? Uh, all right, Avram, you don't, you don't feel my pain. All right, I haven't cued you in yet. All right, so we'll wait a second. You can find me here every Thursday morning. 10 a.m. right after Charlie and right before Nahum's live lunch, as I hope to bring you a little entertainment, a little news, and a little relief that the life you are leading is not nearly as wacky as mine. By the way, if I sound a little nasal to you, it's not your computer. <laughs> it's not the app. Don't be sending us emails saying, uh, Miriam doesn't sound right. Yeah, Miriam doesn't sound right. I am uh, on my second course of antibiotics in the last five weeks, and uh, now doubling that with steroids. So basically, I can bend steel. That's what I'm feeling right now. I'm still trying out my new theme song. I have not had any complaints except, again, from the ones from my family members, but those we take with a grain of salt. So I think we're sticking with it. Avram, you have a, you have a complaint? Hey, I by the way, fine. good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I think it's fine. Uh, fine? Yeah. All right, Dave Matthews, thanks you very much for your fine compliment. Coming to you from the home of the Nahum Siegel Network on the beautiful Lower East Side. Can we get the air on, please? I'm working on things. I, I get that, but I'll get We'll get to it. Don't you worry. can bake bread in here, buddy. I have some bread in here. I... <laughs> I got bread this morning because I didn't have challah. I have yet to eat it yet because I've just been busy. <laughs> uh, for those of you who haven't figured out yet, Avrami's here. Uh, if you're a new listener to the show, thanks for taking a break from your morning to tune in. And if you're a returning listener, thanks as always for making me part of your day. If Miriam Elwalik once a week is just not enough for you, do what Ari Zoldan does. You can friend me on Facebook. Send me an invite on LinkedIn. You can also shoot me an email, miriam at nachamsegel.com. I will not respond to you during the show. I'm not being rude, just being honest. I will, please God, get back to you afterwards. Also, please follow us on Twitter, Nachum Siegel Net, all one word, and also Miriam L. Wallach, also one word. Let's go to our favorite, oh, we can't go to our favorite segment yet, because I do want to take care of some uh, some business, but Avrami's not paying attention. Oh, that's not true. Avrami's actually getting Dr. Solomon, our first guest, on the uh, on the phone right now. So, all right, fine. We're going to go to our favorite segment. What does the fortune cookie say? Avram, I'm feeling I'm feeling lucky. By the way, for those of you who didn't know, last week I got a bonus fortune cookie that I posted on Twitter and Facebook after the show, sometime yes, uh, last Thursday in the afternoon, which was half of being smart is knowing what you are dumb about. And I've actually taped that to my laptop. That has become my credo. But let's see what we got today. And Confucius says, your ideals are well within your reach. Yeah, and the immortal words of Nachum Siegel, shkayach. Let's take care of uh, some business. Today's national holidays. It is National Food Day, Avrami. It, yeah, I know. <laughs> Avrami's like, dude, that's every day. Yeah, exactly. I know, I know, I know. It's National Food Day. There's a link to it. You can go on the Internet and find out about, I, I promise you, find out about food day activities in your neighborhood, including having kids peel vegetables and put peelers in their hands for the first time. I would like to extend food day and make it a three-day yentif, otherwise known as my kids are making Shabbos. Also, today is United Nations Day. Um, who knew that they needed a whole day? But anyway, I'd like, that is my thanks to Ari Zoldan and to Ellen Ratner for inviting me last Friday to join them at the Correspondence Lunch at the UN. Um, if somebody, if you saw that I had posted a picture of Madeleine Albright on Facebook, that was where that picture was taken. She was actually incredibly, incredibly, incredibly entertaining. She was a wonderful speaker, and she was wearing bright red shoes, which was really cute. Um, 
It is also World Development Information Day. I don't know what that means. I don't have the information. But tomorrow, Avram, you ready? It's Chucky the Notorious Killer Doll Day. (laughs) I have no idea what that means, but it's fun. Anyway, Dr. Solomon's on the phone, so I really want to keep this uh, limited, but I do want to share the um, the crazy commuting story for this morning. Of course, there were actually two events. It's a supersized segment, even though we are trying to keep things short in the interest of time. First of all, a passenger sat down next to me. She clearly put her bicycle behind us um, near the door entrance. She probably parked it there and then came to sit down. But as she sat down, she kept on her helmet and her cycling gloves, and she was quite a tall woman. I mean, for as tall as I am, she was definitely towering over me. And with her helmet on, she was even even larger, even taller. Anyway, so she sits down and the conductor comes by to check everyone's tickets. And she, he looks at her and says, ma'am, we're not going to crash. Take off the helmet. Yep. It's your morning chuckle from the Long Island Railroad. That was that was the first event. Can you you got to put the air on up. You're killing me. Um, the second. I had forgotten. I know, because you subsist on bread and water, and I subsist on chocolate chip cookies. Okay, but the, uh, you brought butter. Of course you did. Um, by the way, this was the second, this was the second event. You ready for this morning? All right, Avrami's giving me a thumbs up. I got on the subway, Avrami, and there was, and I sat down, I got a seat, and all of a sudden, um, at the next stop, a gentleman comes on, who was a little bit Dan Aykroyd, Steve Martin from the 70s on Saturday Night Live. With the excessive gold chains and the shirt opened up a wee bit too much, and the 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 ripped jeans, which really aren't the 1970s, it's really the 1980s, and a matching. I, you'll find out in a second why I, this really caught my attention. Well, first of all, he was really standing in front of my face, but he had a matching Gucci belt and Gucci shoes. Okay, <laughs> right. Okay, so uh, it seems I was staring. And not in a good way. You're looking for the remote control? Is that what's going on here, Avram? You got it? Thank you. Anyway, so it seems I must have been staring at this gentleman and not in a good way. At least I wasn't doing it in a good way. I was like a little bit more like, dude, what's going on here? But um, he looks at me and says, like what you see? <laughs> I looked at him and I go, no. <laughs> and he just smiled and then proceeded to get off at the next stop. But it just goes to show that when you really – don't think that you're staring. You better be a little bit more, a little bit less obvious, as the case may be. Anyway, you're listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And on hold is Dr. Michael Salomon, who um, I, I've had on before and is a wonderful, wonderful guest. And I appreciate him, his joining me this morning um, to discuss, actually, something that's not funny at all. Dr. Salomon, are you there? I'm here. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this morning. I appreciate it. Um, it's, this, is, this, is a tough, this is a tough conversation to even begin um, simply because there's 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 nothing funny about it, and um, while I can find the humor in many things in life, I, I don't see anything funny here. And unfortunately, our topic this morning that I wanted that I that I asked to discuss with you, and again, I appreciate your time, is the story of these school shootings that have been taking place. What seems to be, and I, I obviously I'm exaggerating, but what seems to be on a weekly basis. There were two stories this week. One of the 13-year-old who shot two people and uh, shot two people, killed himself and left two other people injured um, in a middle school. And then the other story a couple of days later about a 14-year-old who was arrested for killing his teacher. Yes. And I am 
I, I'm sorry, I, and I am, I am, as we all are, we are horrified and we are outraged. And for lack of a better question, and this is not eloquently put, but what in the name of God is going on? Um, well, there are a couple of things going on. First is um, that uh, we're, we're hearing more about it now than we ever heard about it before, and that's because the media has gotten into looking into these things, as I think they should. Um, in the past, it was kind of swept under the carpet. Um, we didn't have um, all that uh, type of shooting stuff, but we did have situations where kids brought guns, uh, not guns, uh, knives, right. and, and things like that to school, right. and brass knuckles, and things like that. That was always the case. Um, but now guns are so much more available, and, and the, uh, the environment supports the use of having guns in the house, so we're um, going to see more and more of them. The question really is, who are the kids that are doing these things, and, and why? Uh, and actually, there is some good research on that, and it's been supported over the years. And, and we do know what to look out for. The problem is we don't know how to do anything to stop it. Well, I want to I I ask you one question. I mean, I shouldn't say I want to ask you one question, but I do want to say one thing, is that while I do not want guns in my house, and I don't want to speak for you, but I don't know that you want guns in your house either. I definitely do not. Okay. But I, as a believer in the rights of in the rights that we've been guaranteed by the Bill of Rights, I am also not interested in um, denying anyone else their right, as well as protected by the Constitution. So I are, are we we're not here to say that guns are the problem, are we? Well, yes and no. Guns, okay. Uh, the the accessibility of guns to children are the problem. Okay, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not a constitutional lawyer, not by a long shot, so I wouldn't debate any of that with you, but you'd be surprised how many people in our communities actually own guns. Absolutely. And, and the prevalence of having guns, this, this almost desire to keep guns in the home, has added to the, the issue. They're just more accessible, they're more around. And if you think you can lock guns away from kids who have a penchant for them or, or, or have problems that and guns seem like an easy answer for them, mm -hmm. uh, you can't do that. It's just almost an impossible task. I don't care what they tell you about locking guns away. Kids right. are very adept at finding ways around locks. Well, oh, absolutely. Every rule is meant to be broken, correct? Correct. <laughs> I think I posted something like that on Facebook this morning. There's also, uh, I mean, there's also the issue, um, obviously, uh, in terms of educating kids about guns in ray whether it's a water gun whether it's using your you know your finger your fingers to make a pistol just anything like that there has to be an overall sensitivity well yeah um but again there there are that's no it's normal for kids to pretend to play with guns and 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 that's not indicative of a problem um that actually may be a way to to test the the environment and limits on, on behavior and so forth that are common to all children at all age, at certain ages as they get older, uh, we would expect to see certain things like that. But there are certain children where it becomes a problem. And again, you know, we have, we have ways of, of understanding certain things about it, and, and, and we should look at that for a moment. In fact, um, if you look at most of these situations where kids have used guns in, in school settings or have used them against other children, Right. Most of these kids come from specific, specific types of environments or they have specific types of, of mental health problems. Um, four categories in general. First is uh, they all come from an environment where they have fewer family resources or if they do have a, a lot of family resources, 
They're not used for the family necessarily. Um, there is, uh, they also come from an environment where there's a lot less parental supervision. Mm. Um, many of these kids have poor social skills. Right. So they have peer problems. And a good number of them have significant school performance issues. They either have learning disabilities or they have attention deficit problems or they have real diagnosable um, schizophrenias or psychoses or things like that, real severe mental illness problems. And, and if they have two or more of them, they're certainly more prone to acting out violently. And this is a fact, and we know that. The problem is um, schools don't really have the resources to investigate these things and follow up on them. And, you know, even in the Newton shooting, there's, there's some talk about how the school knew that there were problems with this particular kid, but the minute he left the school environment, um, they lost touch with him. He was never referred on to a proper agency to monitor him. And um, that, what happened, happened. Is there profiling that a school can do in terms of what we know? And, I, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that this is a good route. I'm just asking, uh-huh. do we have enough clinical data to say that there are kids who st- who who may stand out more than we appreciate, and we need to profile a student who could fall into this category, so to speak, so that we can not prevent a shooting because we're not uh, we're not we're not saying that each kid who falls into this category is going to get themselves a gun Correct. and inflict harm, but instead by by potentially profiling a certain kind of student with certain characteristics, we can get that kid whatever help that person needs. So if there is some kind of um, desire on behalf of that student to inflict pain on others, we've nipped it in the bud. So you, you just hit on the, the, the actual issue. It's not a matter of profiling. Schools are actually mandated to know their children and to intercede when they need to. Um, and if they know that a child has a social skills problem or comes from an environment where the parents aren't involved, they have to intervene. That's the law. That's a mandated clause of being a responsible teacher or administrator in a school or a mental health professional or a health professional. So it may be profiling from one perspective, but it's a, a rule to help these children do what they need to do. Now, I'm not saying that all, as you just pointed out, I'm not saying all these kids who have these problems turn into murderers. Right, heaven forbid. But they all have problems that can be altered, repaired, completely eradicated if we intervene soon and, and properly in their lives. And if we don't do that, then we're opening up their lives and, and lives of others to all kinds of problems later on. When do schools possibly cross the line, Dr. Solomon? When do they possibly cross the line in terms of going from being educators to actually parenting the child? Or is there no line that can be crossed? Um, you know, Am I making any I don't even know that I'm making any sense, honestly. But at some point or another, I wonder when there's going to be, and I'm sure that there have been. There have been parents who I'm sure have been contacted by schools and said, the school has said, listen, I think that your child is displaying X, Y, and Z tendency, and um, we would like to give them uh, special resources, special attention, special whatever it is, in order to help that child out of, whatever difficulty they're facing, um, and help that child integrate better into the classroom and into social situations and into school. When is What happens when that parent says, don't parent my kid, I parent my kid? Well, I think the parent doesn't have the right to actually say that if, if there's a clear 
problem. Um, yeah, again, we're crossing into legal territory here, but and I'm involved in two cases like this this week. One where a parent was very grateful, um, extremely grateful that the school found the problem and inferred for proper evaluation and so forth. And another situation where a parent actually threatened to kill the members of the teaching staff. Oh my! And uh, the police were called, and cease and desist letters went out. No way. Way. Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, and, you know, the shame of it is uh, that the child will get the, the intervention despite the parent's objection because that's the law. Mm. And it's a good thing that the school brought it up because if the school didn't, I guarantee you that this particular child would have significant problems down the road. Aye. Not that they don't already have significant <laughs> problems. It would, e- would be even worse later on if, it wasn't, if they didn't do anything at this point. So, you know, it's an interesting balance, but I think it's clear that we do things in, if I could say the phrase, in the best interest of the child, right. sometimes we make mistakes, but, you know, we do what we have to do. And, and if you have to report a parent for not taking care of the child properly, well, that's the law. Right. And, and the government is supposed to provide well-trained people to evaluate whether or not it's true. And teachers, health care providers, uh, anybody who works with children is mandated to make sure they make those reports. And they are protected by law for making those reports. We err on the side of caution. Always. Yeah, especially in this case. I mean, you can't, you can't be too careful, I would say. And by the way, and, and for the listeners who are out there who are saying, oh, this could never happen in a yeshiva, please don't say that. Well, one of these cases did happen, that I just mentioned, is happening right now in a yeshiva. Wow. Uh, and it does happen in yeshiva all the time. This is not new. And unfortunately, there are times when yeshivas try not to, to get involved because they're afraid it's going to cause problems in the family. And, and I've had discussions with administrators in yeshivas about how, as a mandated reporter, I can't use that excuse. If I see a problem, I'm going to report it, and, and we do. And, and that's just the way life is. By the way, just so that people understand the term mandated reporter? Um, anyone who is a, a, a professional who works in an environment where children are involved, um, is mandated by law to report instances where a child is uh, in need um, or there's a concern that the child may be neglected or abused. Mm. And and the the phrase that we use is you're a mandated reporter because the law mandates that you must report any possible concern. Dr. Solomon, do you work uh, in schools also? You also just see private patients? Well, I consult in schools. So if you are consulting, if you are acting as a consultant, which you do, what do you advise educators to look for in terms of a child who would fall at risk here? Well, different ages, we look for different things. But overall, we look for children who are having primarily problems with with um, getting along with other children, in other words, social skills types problems, mm-hmm. or um, they're very fidgety in class and they can't seem to, to get themselves organized. Or obviously, phys- obvious physical signs of a problem, um, scratch marks, uh, black and blue marks, or children who tend to be very, very withdrawn. Those are basically the categories we tend to look for. Why black and blue marks? Uh, they might be getting beaten up by someone at home. Ah, uh, okay. That's And as a result, they are going to potentially, that there is the risk of them coming to school and exerting or getting revenge, so to speak, um, in, in in this manner. Correct. Correct. We've seen situations which, uh, in this particular case, I was fortunate, did make the newspaper, where a kid brought a gun to school, and he brought the gun to school, 
14-year-old, brought the gun to school not because he was angry at his peers or his teachers, but because he had an older brother, uh, six years older than him, who was beating him up daily. Oh. Um, and you know, the parents weren't aware of it, or they didn't want to be aware of it. Uh, and uh, he, uh, luckily, he was caught at the door by a, uh, a very aware uh, security guard. Wow. Unbe- I mean, it's. I would say it's unbelievable, but then I just pick up the newspaper and I realize how believable it is. We're speaking with Dr. Michael Solomon. He is a senior psychologist and director of ADC Psychological Services in Hewlett, New York. You can find them at psychologicalhelp.org. Dr. Solomon, so let's let's take the next step because I'm as as you know, you're a parent, I'm a parent, and um, it should not be with a heavy heart that I put my kids on the bus in the morning. So when I emailed you. That when I emailed you about discussing this topic, um, I semi joked, and of course it was tongue in cheek, but that I wanted to, I wanted to discuss resisting the temptation to wrap our kids in bubble wrap and homeschool everyone. Because if you're choosing to homeschool your kids, that that's fine, but it shouldn't be because you're afraid there are guns in school. Correct. <laughs> so we try to send them to an environment where we trust that they're being watched and carefully protected. Um, we try to send them to a school where we know that teachers are on top of things and the school has a uh, a must-report rule that they enforce. And, and we try to teach our children to be smart. And smart doesn't mean um, that uh, you run from kids who are different. Uh, it's interesting. Children who have these problems and tend to become violent or difficult, um, if, you, if you befriend them and if you're supportive of them and you... And you and basically model good behavior for them, you are actually helping them overcome their problems. So, you know, we, we, not, we went out of our way, Naomi and I, to teach our kids how to be friendly with other children, mm. no matter what their, their issues were. Um, we didn't let them get into situations where they, they would be taken advantage of, but that takes a lot of parental supervision and time and work and understanding and getting the kids to talk to you about who their friends are and, and why certain kids they like and why certain kids they don't like and, and what they do how they handle the feelings about the kids that they don't like and so forth. So, you know, this is kind of a plea to parents to stay involved and, and don't disconnect from what your kids are doing. Right. Don't disconnect from what your kids are doing, whether it's checking what they're looking at on Facebook, going through their history on their computers, looking at their phones every once in a while. It's not about snooping on your kids. It's about being involved. Being connected, absolutely. You have to be involved. And, pa- and kids need to know that parents are part of this. They're not the enemy. It's well, you know, that's a discussion for another day. But Parents are the enemy? No. Oh, okay. Parents are not necessarily the friends of kids, and that's the biggest problem we have. That I agree with. That I agree with. You know, it's funny that you, you, you say that because I take umbrage when a parent gets up at a family simcha and refers to one of his or her children as their best friend. And and it's it really bothers me. And I actually explain this to my daughter and I said, I I need you to know that I'm always your parent. It's it's not that you and I are not connected, but friend is friend and parent is parent. Right. Am I am I You're absolutely right. Yeah. Perfectly. It's um well I <laughs> want that on a billboard. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't let it go to your head. It's it's a, don't I was I, I think the moment has already passed. Tell me something. Am I being too overly sensitive or too you know, liberal democrat by the fact that I don't allow any water guns or anything else in my home? Um, you know, sometimes when you restrict it completely, kids become overly interested in those sorts of things. How do, you, how, do you, how do you strike the balance? Because there's nothing 
about, and I appreciate that, and I and I don't live under a rock, and I know that you're right. Um, but there's obviously also the other extreme where you make kids so desensitized that they don't realize that there's something either scary, dangerous, or something that needs to be treated very, very respectfully. I mean, you should not look at the responsibility of ha- taking, I should you should not take the responsibility of having a handgun in your home lightly by any stretch of the imagination. So how do you strike that balance? Well, you know, the way we did it, very practical, and I'm not sure there's any specific data on this anywhere, but we allowed them to have water guns that didn't look like regular guns. Anything that resembled a, a real gun was not allowed in the house. So anything that looked like a machine gun that has that pumping action that the kids love was not allowed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And by the way, there, I mean, there are plenty of stories, unfortunately, in the news of kids who have brought fake guns, toy guns that look so real. Right. That is also very scary. That's correct. It, there has to, I mean, is it the responsibility? I mean, somebody's going to say that I'm really just totally off the mark here, but is it the responsibility of the, of the toy maker to say, you know, this is, we're crossing a line here. We should not be making something that looks that real? Well, um, now you're crossing over into Tea Party territory. Hey! <laughs> Trying to get me to say something political. It's not going to happen. <laughs> no, heaven forbid. This is not a political show. That's spin class. That happens at 6 p.m. Okay. No, but I think that the, the the reality is is that we all, you know, somebody's, and is something that you and I have discussed before is that the parent always has to be the parent. Right. Is that there are always going to be, there are always going to be, um, regulations or this or that or somebody's going to say, oh, it's the responsibility of this company. Oh, it's the responsibility of legislatures. Oh, it's the responsibility of school administrators to make sure X, Y, and Z. Education begins in the home. Absolutely. Uh, You know, it's one thing if kids are buying videos and you don't know what the video looks like until you plug it in. Right. Um, It's quite another thing when you know what a gun looks like and and it resembles an actual Glock (laughs) and it's the same color and it, it... it clicks the same way and right. allow your child to play with it. So at that point, I think, you know, if, if you've got half a brain, you don't necessarily want your child to be playing with what looks like, feels like, and sounds like a real gun. And what about, what about the parent who says, well, I let my kids play with that, but I also take my kid to a, to a shooting range where I teach them the importance and the responsibility um, of using these kinds, uh, using a weapon like this responsibly. I, I actually am not a supporter of that approach. Wow. I've told parents I don't think that's wise, particularly with certain types of children who have certain types of problems. And you know what? If you want to take your child to a shooting range, wait until they're in their later teens. Mm. Very, very good advice. Dr. Solomon, next time you come on, we have to pick a light and airy topic. Well, you know, I'm going to go eat my uh, chocolate chip cookie now <laughs> and listen to Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> But did I date myself? You did. You did great. By the way, Stairway to Heaven is a great song. It's just, <laughs> it's just overplayed. It's so overplayed. Anyway, for those people who have no idea what we're talking about, you can check out my Facebook page, and you can reach Dr. Solomon at 516-569-0073. That's ADC Psychological Services in Hewlett. Dr. Solomon, as always, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Listening to That's Life here on the Nahum Siegel Network, and I am joined by my second guest, Professor Jeffrey Gurok, is the Libby Clapperman Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University and former chair of the Academic Council of the American Jewish Historical Society. He served from 1982 to 2002, which I can't imagine because he was only 18, as associate editor of American Jewish History, the leading academic journal in that field. He is also the author 
and or editor of 14 different books. His works include A Modern Heretic and a Traditional Community, Mordechai M. Kaplan, Orthodoxy in American Judaism, put out by Columbia Press. And in 1998, A Modern Heretic was awarded the biannual Saul Vienner Prize from the American Jewish Historical Society for the best book written in that field. The book, Orthodox Jews in America, which was put out by Indiana University Press in 2009, was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award in the area of American Jewish Studies. His latest book, Jews in Gotham, New York Jews and Their Changing City, City, put out by NYU, won the Everett Foundation Family Award from the Jewish Book Council as the best nonfiction Jewish book for 2012. That is the last time we spoke to Professor Gorak, and I am pleased that he's able to join me today. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. Once again, it takes 40 years to be an overnight sensation. So, <laughs> although I was only 18 in your estimation, it's been a while since uh, I started writing uh, Jewish history, so it's always a pleasure. And uh, another one of my books is uh, Judaism's Encounter with American Sports, which is another one of my interests. Well, and that brings us to the article in the New York Times last weekend um, by Samuel Friedman entitled, For Jewish Schools Football Team, It's Thursday Night Lights, in which you were quoted. And I'm so happy you're able to join me on the air to discuss this story because, uh, just like you, I am also a big fan of anything having to do with sports. And in this case, sports having to do with students and even closer to our hearts is the story of basically the little engine that could, except when it comes to, uh, except in this case, it's about a Jewish school and a team of Jewish students from a Jewish school who somehow or another are making inroads in a in a an athletic path where otherwise no Orthodox Jew has ever walked. Well, it's an interesting story because it, it really speaks to, in my estimation, uh, a level of tolerance towards traditional Judaism that we rarely see or didn't see in the past. Uh, Sam's... Uh, title uh, Thursday Night Lights, of course, uh, for most football fans, high school football fans, uh, it's Friday Night Lights, right. and those are not Shabbos candles. Right. It's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a major, major event. And one of the, one of the questions I had about the, the program was uh, the issue that often faces Orthodox teams and individual Orthodox athletes is, how do you reconcile our clock and calendar that does not coincide with sports clock and calendar? Now, to tell you the truth, when it comes to things like uh, the World Series, uh, there's been a tremendous amount of accommodation, recognition of the uh, sanctity of uh, Yomim Noraim. But for Friday night, for Shabbat, uh, on an ongoing basis, they're in a situation where clearly, although uh, football is really king in Florida, it's one of the big football right. states, Florida State, University of Miami, um, uh, University of Florida, all you know, top 25 teams. It's it's a civic religion, and yet they found a place for Orthodox Jews within that civic religion just by moving the the calendar to Thursday, which is a big deal, a huge deal. It's a, it's a right. It's, it's a huge deal. Right. And um, I think it's I think it's something. The first thing that I was going to mention, by the way, is that you as a baseball fan and me as a baseball fan, and you as a New Yorker and me as a New Yorker, you and I both know. There is actually no World Series going on this no, season. They cancel the playoffs exactly. around the, right in the middle of September. <laughs> I, I, I agree with you. Exactly. But, but the issue of clock and calendar is, is so profound. Right. And by the way, it's not even a sports story. It's a story of anybody who's orthodox, who wants to be involved uh, in front of the camera, be involved in opera, Absolutely. theater, music. How do you reconcile your 
traditional faith with uh, the most secular types of um, activities, which is what intrigues me and what motivated me to write uh, a large portion of the uh, of the book. I'm so happy, by the way, that you brought up that angle of it because that's what part of the article spoke to me. And for those people who did not get a chance to read the article um, in the uh, in the uh, on religion column, where Sam Friedman often is is often found, right? This is a story of a of a Jewish high school in Florida that a number of years ago wanted to start a football team, and of course they joke that your uh, the paradigm of the Jewish student is not that of a linebacker. Uh, um, but nevertheless, there was a dedicated group, and they hired a coach, and they had an assistant coach, and they really were making a concerted effort. And this wasn't flag football anymore. This was really high school football where they were going to be comp- playing competitively. Right. And in order to get into a real um, a real competition and 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 it not just be you know scrimmages against against each other, they were able to enter into uh, work with these other schools who were willing to accommodate their schedule. And so I, 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 I believe and I agree with you that I totally looked beyond the superficial level of this story. It is about, and you'll, you'll excuse me for a second, it's about a guy like Nahum Siegel. It's about a guy who, or a story mm-hmm. of kids or, uh, or an individual who is interested in something or in a field where Orthodox Jews don't usually go. And but, they find success. But, but for me, the, the large story is that their desires and their interests are being accommodated by a by a, by American society. Agreed. And I'll contrast this now. Just a, two years ago, or a year and a half ago, there was a there was an interesting incident uh, in Dallas where right. a, a day school was in a regional tournament, mm-hmm. the Barron Academy. The Barron Academy. And they had accommodated uh, Christian schools, but they wouldn't accommodate. The, they want to have them forfeit the game, uh, which would have taken place on Friday night. They wouldn't move the game. Well, there was a tremendous outroar. One of the great Jews of the 21st century, Jeff Van Gundy, who's <laughs> not a Jew, you know, uh, stepped to the plate, and others said, you know, why, why don't you accommodate accommodate them? And in the end, the end, the uh, the league changed its rules. Not only um, Letting Byron play, I think they got to the finals. They lost by a couple of points, right. which is totally irrelevant to right. the story. How well they did, but subsequently they have changed their their protocols on this sort of thing. I want to tell you another Jewish football story along these lines. It's not about Orthodox Jews. Uh, about five or six years ago, a Jewish student in Des Moines, Iowa, who belonged to a Reformed congregation, petitioned the Des Moines school board to have them move a Friday night game, which was on Arab Rosh Hashanah. Uh, away from our holiday, uh, so he could re, uh, attend a reformed temple. His reformed rabbi joined him in this petition, and to the great surprise of a lot of people, the Des Moines School Board accommodated them, and the Des Moines Register had a big article about this, and there was a sidebar piece explaining to the general readers, I'll call them the Gentile readers of the newspaper, what Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur poor were all about and that was a, a, a turning point moment for that community right. and Iowa like Florida like Ohio like Texas Friday night is a civic holiday mm-hmm. and yet uh, in this case for a reformed Jew I, I suppose who wasn't so concerned about every Friday game playing on a regular 
in a regular public school, they made this accommodation. It, it, it speaks to levels of acceptance and tolerance in the United States. I agree with you, but then it begs the next question. What, why didn't it work in Dallas? Why was the climate, or what about the climate there, was different? They were not willing to accommodate, and that there was this whole brouhaha and this terrible, terrible example, I, I don't want to say of anti-Semitism, but of a lack of tolerance. Whereas you look at the situation in Florida and say, oh, I mean, we say good for them and great, but shouldn't that be the norm? Like, why did this work and that not? It's hard to say what motivated them to be unwilling to change their rules. I mean, part, part of the story was, if I'm, not, if I'm correct, and I think I am, that when the Berlin Academy joined this league, they were, they were aware that there might be some problems if they got to the finals. Correct. Correct. And lo and behold, they have a great team, right? If they get to the finals, <laughs> there's a problem. Right. So I think, you know, to some extent, these uh, the jockocracy, as we often call it, uh, was hidebound as far as their rules were concerned. They didn't want to be pressured to change. But in the end, they did change. And it wasn't only because it was an, an outcry from the local Jewish community. And it, was, it wasn't only because they got a temporary restraining order from the courts. And the courts reflect society because Christians stepped up, like right. Jeff Van Gundy, and mm-hmm. said, wait a minute, what are, you, what, what are you doing here? Look, I am painting a very bright picture. There are other examples where it hasn't worked all that well. It's community by community. I think in Seattle or it was Portland a couple of, a couple of years ago, there was an issue in terms of a, of a Jewish uh, girls' high school um, wanting a game moved away from Tanit Esther and they wouldn't do it. Really? So it depends on the situation, right. you know. Uh, and I'll tell you something else. It also talks about the situation of Jews in, in America as opposed to the situation of our brethren in Israel, because whenever there is an international match, you know, we're in the midst of uh, the World Cup season coming around the right. corner. You saw, right. about, you saw the article or the, the post on Facebook or all over the paper, all over... Um, media about the the swimmer mm-hmm. in um, in where was it Abu Dhabi if I'm not mistaken could be could be yeah, yeah. it that um, that or maybe been in Qatar I, I I I apologize to whichever country I'm I was Qatar I was right okay it was Qatar yeah. sorry where the he came in second this Israeli swimmer came in second in this meet and where there is usually a flag representing that country of the winner posted with alongside their time, their right. winning time, the Israeli flag was whited out and there was just a white square. Now, right. obviously, anyone on Facebook um, who bleeds blue and white took offense to this and we all came out in outrage, but there was still, obviously, there's no recognition. But you see, when it comes to Shabbat and, and Yomim Noraim, whether it's uh, the International Football Association, the Soccer Association, there was an international lacrosse tournament where the Israelis... Uh, they wouldn't accommodate the, the high holy days, etc. Look, the fact that Israel, when I last looked, is located in Asia, plays in the European League because the Arab countries won't recognize them. I often say in my work that uh, sports are community-defining situations. Mm. Actually, one of my professors many years ago, an African-American professor, used to say that for minority groups, wars and sports are community-defining situations. If you're allowed to play for your country or your city or your community, it says a lot about 
levels of acceptance. And, I mean, thank goodness in America things are quite good for us in right. terms of the low, low, low level of anti-Semitism, and the contrast with Israel is just so, is so striking. There's one other thing about football that I should mention, and that is their choice of sport is quite interesting because the types of sports that Jews went into historically in the United States uh, were sports that were predominantly urban-based, uh, like baseball, but mostly basketball, which was played in tenement houses and on the streets, mm. and boxing and things of right. that sort. To play football, you need a gridiron. You need a lot of open spaces. Right, okay? and you need a lot of equipment. And a lot of equipment, the cost factors, etc. Correct. So what I said in my quote, in my quote, part of my quote uh, was that it also speaks to a level of these Orthodox students acculturating to um, uh, the dominant sport in their area, which is football. More The Miami Dolphins sell out. The uh, Miami, I can't remember their names now, the Miami baseball team has trouble drawing fans. Tampa Bay, likewise. So football is very big. Right. So you can be Orthodox and you can be part of that sports culture in Florida. Without, without violating your uh, traditions. I just got an email today. Uh, it wasn't sent to me directly, but um, Yeshiva of the South, I think that's called, in, in Memphis. Memphis right. okay? uh, Doctor uh, Rabbi Dr. Gil Pearl, I believe, is the, uh, the principal yeah, there, he's announced amazing. that they're, they're starting a flag, a flag football team. And wow. in his note, he said, you know, when we think of Jews and sports in America, we don't often speak of Jews playing uh uh, football, football, although, you know, you have Sid Luckman and Marty Glickman and Marshall Goldberg, a few, you know, you know very famous uh, ball players, but this is not a particularly American Jewish sport. But it's a Floridian sport, and clearly this day school, they're good Floridians in addition to being uh, pretty darn good Jews. There was, it, it's funny that you bring that up because I, I asked my, my daughter, who's in high school, to read the article. Um, I wanted to hear her take on it because obviously these kids are all of the same age or right. similar age. Mm -hmm. And her first response to me was football. And I said to her, keep in mind, you live on Long Island. <laughs> like, you know, Jews, Jews on Long Island, we're playing a lot of arena hockey. We're playing a lot of sock hockey, so to speak. And um, it's all it, like this is the this is. This is something that we're doing that's completely commonplace, that there are leagues for kids who are starting in third grade, etc., and everyone's in some kind of a hockey league. That's a norm in New York. But in terms Actually, of... Actually, it's not a norm in New York. It's a norm among certain segments of the modern Orthodox community that have created this sport and who uh, find it very popular. Nobody plays that hockey anyplace else right, in that's the true. country. That's true. We, um, a, a couple of people you know, dub it yeshiva sport, yeshiva hockey. That's correct. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a very fair point. I appreciate that. But when she, like, she couldn't grasp the whole hockey, the whole football mentality as it being part of their social makeup because it's just not the way we're geared. And right. when my husband took um, our son, one of our sons, to a Lawrence high school championship football game out on Long Island in the other end of Long Island against another competing school. Besides the fact that we were the, he was the only you know, Orthodox Jew who was sitting there mm -hmm. just supporting a team that's a local team, the, my son didn't even appreciate the fact that this was all going on because we, they don't play football. Right. Well, New York City is not a big, is not a, uh, a big football town except for our professional teams. Uh, right. 
uh, the Giants and the Jets. Right, and we don't we don't take responsibility for either of them right now either. But the um, but the other thing was is that it totally threw her for a loop, threw my daughter for a loop that there were Jews who were built to play football. And I said to her, I, I made some kind of a joke like, you know, we're not all lawyers or something like that. But there's something about this breaking of the this also this physical stereotype of 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 you know the paradigm of the Jew that that lends to this also. And you look at these boys, and for lack of a better word, they just look like high school football players. Right now, you have to understand the, the I mentioned in my in my quotation the canard against Jews is not being strong. Well, that was that was disabused by uh, Jewish boxers. In the 1920s, there were 17 Jews who held world championships in boxing. But it was an urban-based sport, and they're not playing football all that much. And the truth is, they're not playing baseball all that much, even though you know the iconic figure of Hank Greenberg looms large. Probably the most significant aspect of his life is that, according to Gurak family tradition, he played handball with my mother uh, <laughs> at the Castle Hill, Hill Swim Club in the nineteen in the nineteen thirties. That's Yichus, by the way. That, that is Yichus. That's right. And my father was an amateur wrestler, so wow. I, have, I have good uh, good sports genes. Okay, but the point the point I'm making is uh, the sports you choose. Uh, Jew or Gentile has a lot to do with the the ecological venue that you find yourself in, and that's why there were so many Jewish Jewish basketball players uh, generations ago. And uh, frankly, in terms of Jews playing sports today, you are more likely to see Jews doing well in tennis, uh, in golf, uh, and that that bespeaks suburban lifestyle, levels of integration, uh, and the like. Interesting. I, I have to imagine also at Yeshiva University, you've had the opportunity to schmooze a number of times with, with Coach Halpern, who is the coach of the YU Max. And well, I was, I, I've been his assistant coach off and on for the last 25 years. So right? then you can speak to the the feeling that you get representing YU in a you know outside of the Max Stern Athletic Center and going to represent YU in some other venue with your yarmulkes on with all these boys who are not boys, who are men, and um, and really feeling that experience out there as a as an ambassador. Well, uh, one of the things that's most striking about YU Athletics, about uh, the basketball team, about which I know a little bit, is not only taking, the, taking our team on the road, but the fact that we're the only place outside of Israel where Hatikva has played along with the Star Spangled right. Banner uh, before games. Now it's very interesting when we built this, when Yeshiva built this gym about almost more than 25 years ago. There was some discussion about whether or not uh, we should play the Hatikva. Mayomuha goyim. What will the mm. the teams that come into Yeshiva uh, feel about having to stand and listen to the what's called the Jewish national anthem? It's Israeli, but obviously right. Jewish right. national anthem. So on occasion, I've spoken to the other coaches and say, well, how do your kids feel about the fact that kids stand at attention and the referees at attention for Hatikva? And a few of them said that our players love it. And I said, why? He says, because for them, it uh, it evokes an, like an Olympic international flavor. Huh. This is very, very different. So that also speaks to sometimes tendencies of Jews feeling like, you know, uh, Gentiles uh, are going to be antagonistic to it. Uh, and yet, for them, it's it's um, it's an elevating experience. I remember one time we went on the road, and there is a quasi uh, African American anthem that's sometimes played. 
So they learned from us, and I think we were playing against York College, whatever it was, and they played this African-American national anthem. So anyway, all this speaks to, I think, the, the condition of Jews in uh, uh, in America, and uh, and I'll tell you, as far as taking our team on the road is concerned, mm-hmm. I think one of the and I think uh, Johnny Halpert would agree. One of our best moments, and we're not talking about wins or losses, is that we had a playoff game. It was Megillah night. It was a Saturday night when we had a playoff game, and one of our players read the Megillah in the locker room before the game. Unbelievable. And then we went out and played. I wish I could tell the end of the story, and we won by 47 points. <laughs> we didn't win, but you know what? You, uh, we you made win. a very important statement, right? at, least, at least for ourselves, you know. Uh, wow. And, and, that's, uh, and that's one of the things that makes uh, yeshiva athletics so important, and that's why uh, so many of us... Uh, are, are committed to it. You're listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I am joined by Yeshiva University's Professor Gorak. We are discussing the article last week in the New York Times for Jewish schools football team. It's Thursday Night Lights, highlighting this unbelievable story of this Jewish high school in Florida. You know, it's interesting, by the way, Professor. My uh, my nephew plays for the Max, and I remember going to one of their first games and sitting next to my sister-in-law and brother-in-law and watching him play, you know, watching him on the court, and they were not playing a Jewish school or Jewish team or whatever, and they're, mm-hmm. it's just, it's just a normal game for the Max. And I remember turning to my sister-in-law and brother-in-law and saying, "Your son is playing college-level ball." And it wasn't about the fact that this was their kid; it was their kid who had gone to yeshiva his entire life. Right. It was their kid who had just come back from Israel. It was their kid who was playing ball against, you know, a very tall, <laughs> very large African-American man, and my kid, my nephew's wearing his yarmulke. And, of course, we wouldn't expect or we would hope that there would be no different, but still it's such a statement. And they were, and there was, of course, the parental pride, but there was also that, that, that Jewish pride that right. really exists. So when, when I see other people I know bringing their kids, their little kids, to games at YU, and they don't know any of the players, but they see these Jewish guys wearing yarmulkes on the court, like, that's just tremendous. So I have to tell you a, a YU yarmulke basketball story, my classic story that I've told. You know, I've spoken about my sports book literally around the world, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and I often tell this yeshiva story. About 30 years ago, we had a game out in Madison, New Jersey, against Drew University. It's a Methodist school. It began as a Methodist school, right? And we walk on the court warming up, and some of our boys wear kippot, some of them don't. And we're warming up, and the referee comes out, and he says, they've got to take those things off their heads. Whoa. So uh, we say, fine, we're going back. Fellas, put your sweats back on. We're going, to, we're going back to Washington Heights. Oh. The Drew coach, the Drew coach in, says, what are you talking about to the referee? They've been wearing those things for 30 years. <laughs> now, for the record, we've been wearing them longer than 30 <laughs> years. We were playing Drew for 30 years. But the referee is Adam, and he says, you can't wear yarmulkes because... You're afraid they'll get the the yarmulke pin stuck in the rim and injuries. Oh, brother. No, no, no. There, there, is a, there, is a, there is a protocol about that as far as uh, wearing any sort of jewelry when you play. Okay. In exasperation, the drill coach takes Johnny Halpert, Jeff Garuck, the referee, and his assistant in the back room. He gets on the phone. He calls Boston. I'll never forget the name of the guy. His name was Scotty Whitelaw. Okay? <laughs> wasn't exactly a Jew. He puts... He puts the referee on the phone, and Whitelaw says to him, 
you dirty so-and-so. They've been wearing those things for 30 years. Let them play the game. Wow. Chasing the game starts. We lose by 27 points. On the way back to the way back to Washington Heights, one of the boys walks up to Johnny Halpern and he says, you know, Coach, we should have gotten out of town while we had a chance. <laughs> but if I can ever say that a kid was wrong about something on our basketball team, okay, right. the kid was wrong. Right. It was wrong in the sense that he was kidding around. But, in fact, um, the referee, who I do not believe was anti-Semitic, he was just being a hard-nosed official defining the rules very strictly. And, by the way, there have been incidences where – um, the ACLU of all things has supported the right of players to wear key posts when they when they play. And by the way, we have women's teams here at Stern. I'm speaking to you now from Stern, where I teach on Mondays and Wednesdays, and we have we have an agreement with the NCAA that uh, our some of our women uh, who are married wear uh, keep their heads covered. Not all of them do. Some of them do, and they wear long skirts when they play. You know the way the basketball shorts are today. It's quite sneistic. Right. We didn't plan it that way. Right. <laughs> it worked to our advantage. Is, 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 very, is very modest. So all these things um, speak to where we are as a community in the eyes of the larger world. And lastly, if you think this is a Jewish story, remember the fact that another university would why on its, on its, on its uh, uh, hat, Brigham Young, which is, which is Mormon, got an accommodation from the NCAA because they didn't want to play a NCAA tournament game on their Sabbath, which is Sunday, like chariots of fire. It's a very, very different world. That's unbelievable. I, I, I look forward to, to seeing where my younger kids are in 10 years and wondering whether or not they're going to think any of this is, is unusual or incredible or it's just every day. I just hope it continues to be Every day, that's uh, for sure. That's amen. For sure. Amen. Professor Gorak, thank you so much for joining me. As always, I look forward to speaking to you again soon. My pleasure. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to That's Life here on the Nahum Siegel Network. I'm Miriam L. Wallach. Thanks for making us part of your morning. Let's go through the lineup for the rest of the day. You know what to expect and look forward to and what not to miss. We have a full afternoon of programming right after That's Life. Nahum Siegel is already in the studio He'll be hosting the live lunch in about five and a half minutes, give or take. That goes until one o'clock, followed by Sound Advice with the world-renowned author and psychologist, Dr. David J. Lieberman, at 1 p.m. The doctor is in. He takes your calls. He takes your emails, 212-529-4620. It's like free therapy, folks, except without the couch. Frazier, without the dripping sarcasm or the funny brother. Tune in to hear more. And Mayor Furtick hosts this week's uh, stunt show. At 2 p.m. Eastern Time, it's been a year since Hurricane Sandy. Hear what the OU is still doing to get communities on their feet. By the way, for those people who think that every community and every story is over regarding Hurricane Sandy, as a person who lives in the five towns, I can tell you you are totally mistaken. And the fact that the 7-Eleven on the corner of Rockaway Turnpike and Peninsula Boulevard only opened over the summer, and I'm not kidding, we're talking about a national corporation just understand that Sandy isn't over. For many, many families, Sandy is not over. Mark Zonick's choice for Album of the Week follows uh, Stunt Show. And then guess what? Spin Class at 6 p.m. with guest host Nahum Siegel. Nahum continues to sub as Michael Fragan is on the mayoral campaign with Joe Loda. Um, I should say he's on the campaign trail with Joe Loda. Michael will be checking in at the start of the show. Don't miss it. Charlie Burnout at 7 p.m. wraps up the day. 
So tune in all day long. Nachum tomorrow morning, 6 to 9 a.m. Jame in the a.m. live here on the stream at nachumsegel.com. Jame in the a.m.org, 91.1 FM, 90.9 and 91.9 FM. Don't miss weekly update with Malcolm Holman beginning at 7.40 a.m. tomorrow morning. And, of course, Naomi Nachman, table for two tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Don't miss it either. Check our website. Season two schedule is up. Thanks to Avrami, as always, for engineering me here this morning. Oh, I got a wave. I didn't get any bread, but I got a wave. Okay. Uh, oh, that's nice. Now you're sharing? That's nice. Anyway, I leave you this morning with uh, a song I have played before, but actually a song that's on repeat in on my phone. I've begun, I've become incredibly obsessed with Eyal Golan's Mangina, which is off the Nagatli Balev album. It's a great song. And by the way, anytime somebody wants to tell Eyal Golan I play this song incessantly, go right ahead. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys.